This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. We are back after a brief summer hiatus to bring you our best and worst takes of the crypto world. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network, probably the best one. I'm here, Danny Nelson. Cam Thompson is also here this week. Hey, Cam. Hi, Danny. How's it going? It's going great. Uh, Ben Schiller is off this week, so we won't be hearing from him, but Cam and I will be diving in and talking about all the things we can. So, Cam, what's on your mind this week? You know, I, I have to say, I mean, I had a really nice time off, so... You know, it was a very chaotic week. I mean, you were off for the week before I left, which was the week of Coinbase and Binance. Um, oh, I yes. feel like, you know, we're all, yes. <laughs> but where were you? Where were you when you were on for your time away? Well, as some astute observers noted, uh, I was actually defending Binance. As you can see, there were some legal documents that mentioned that Daniel Nelson had submitted to the court to defend Binance in this case from the SEC. So I actually was taking some time off to defend my corporate client. Right. Of course, I wasn't actually doing that, though there is a Daniel Nelson who probably isn't me who is. I was biking through Germany and Austria. Beautiful. Which is much preferable to going to court. Absolutely. Absolutely. What were you doing? I was relaxing, chilling out. I was in Barbados. I was, you know, completely just vibing, vibing in the sun. Not checking Twitter, but of course, after this past month, I mean, who cannot stay in tune a little bit with the crypto news? I feel like this week will be a very interesting week in terms of regulatory developments, crazy happenings in the NFT space, you know, even though it's summer, it's still a time for news to come out. Yeah, to escape the news cycle myself, I deleted Slack from my phone. I deleted Discord. I already have Twitter deleted from my phone. So I was completely out of the loop. Some people were pigging me to get stuff done. I said, I'm not here. Just uh, please go away. I'll be back later. Yeah, none of the legal team at, at Binance that was trying to trying to get you to show up to court. So but. No, they did not pay me my retainer, so I did not show up. Anyways, let's get to it. We are jumping inside the desk with Nick Day, our policy guru here at Coindesk. We're going to talk about the stories behind the stories we write. This week, Nick is here with a very interesting and long time coming story about freedom of information laws and our efforts to shed some light on Tether and its backing. So Nick, welcome to the show. What have you been up to for these last couple of weeks and really these last couple of years? Hey, yeah, thanks for having me back. So the other week, Coindesk finally received a response to a freedom of information law request that we filed to the New York State Attorney General's office in June 2021, over two years ago. And in that, we basically asked for a list of documents or details about Tether's reserve backing. Basically, we asked for what Tether had filed to the NYAG as part of that uh, regulator's two-year-long inquiry into the stablecoin issuer. So we finally got that back. We got really a first look at some of the banks, some of the issuers of the securities that Tether's used, the bank accounts, its balances at these bank accounts and how it separated, you know, what percent was in USD versus securities versus other assets. And we published on that a couple of weeks ago. 
And let's back up a second. Why should we care at all about what's backing Tether and about Coindesk's efforts to look into that? So Tether's the world's largest stablecoin. As of a couple of weeks ago, had, I think, more than 83 billion USDT in circulation. So more than $83 billion worth of tokens circulating. And what exactly it's been backed by has been a, you know, kind of a mystery for a while. Now, back in 2019, the New York Attorney General's office came out and said, oh, by the way, you know, close to a billion dollars worth of these tokens are not actually backed by reserves. And Tether at the time was much smaller, was not, you know, I forget what it was, but it was not nearly, you know, 80 billion, of course. And that was a, you know, the kickoff to a major inquiry. Now, when the NYAG and Tether settled that case in February 2021, one of the details of that settlement was Tether said it would publish documents that it would share with the NYAG moving forward, saying, here's what our reserves are. Fast forward a couple of weeks, Tether publishes a pair of pie charts. And, you know, that got us thinking, did Tether send pie charts to the NYAG's office over the last couple of years? And so we asked, you know, hey, by the way, this is what we're asking under the Freedom of Information Law. What did Tether provide to the NYAG as part of its assertions that it had XYZ reserves backing the USDT token? Tether obviously filed to kind of block that at the time. That kicked off the whole fight. But, you know, the importance is this crypto industry has this motto, don't trust, verify. We wanted to verify, you know, what exactly was backing this token that is playing a critical role in crypto markets around the world, in transactions, even has found uses outside of crypto to crypto transactions. People are using it for, you know, just as a stand-in for the dollar in various countries. So it has a pretty, you know, significant role. So Nick, two years ago, June 2021, was a very, very different time in the crypto space, you know, feels like we were dinosaurs at this point, having been covering it for so long. I mean, from a flourishing bull run of 2021 to a insane, still ongoing bear market of 2022, you know, we also had events such as the collapse of Terra Luna, you know, raising questions around stable coins and their backings, as well as this potential regulatory move to create some kind of stable coin framework on the way. I guess, how has the context changed around Tether two years ago versus Tether now, you know? Why is it so important to have this information today as opposed to two years ago? It's interesting that you should mention the stablecoin legislation that's been floated in the US. Part of that does come in response to this idea that stablecoins might not be fully backed by stable assets or fully backed at all. There is some role that Tether has played, not Tether the institution, Tether the circulating stablecoin, in terms of getting lawmakers to look at this issue and think about it in a you know, much more comprehensive way than they had been in you know 2019. If you look at the last couple of years, there was the Libra project by Facebook, Tether, the Terra Luna collapse. These three things, I think, are what sparked a lot of legislative comments we're seeing on stablecoins. And just in terms of sheer business size, right, Tether is extremely important, is a money maker, because the way Tether works in a short form is Tether issues these tokens, USDT, and the tokens are treated as being worth $1 because Tether says, well, we have the assets behind these tokens in the bank, whether those are actual dollars or things like US treasury bonds or some more colorful assets like Chinese commercial paper, which as we discovered was in fact partially backing Tether at one point in time. And it's so valuable to just have these dollars or these assets worth a dollar in reserves because Tether can just take its $80 billion, park it in, let's say, treasury bonds and earn 5% 
annualized on those assets, on those holdings, on those investments. Barron's wrote recently that Tether may stand to make more this year than BlackRock just from its fees from holding all this money. So Tether is a huge business that is just minting money by sitting on the assets backing the stablecoin. So it's not only important for the crypto economy, but it's just huge as a business. Yeah. And Tether claims that it no longer holds as much. I think it claims it doesn't hold any commercial paper as of uh, June 26, 2023. Um, as of a couple you know, months ago, I think Tether said it had gotten rid of the last of its commercial paper. But for a while, it would have been one of the largest commercial paper holders in the world. And I know back when this was first announced by the stablecoin issuer, a lot of news organizations spent time trying to figure out who was issuing the commercial paper and where it was from. So to your point, absolutely. It is a major player in the global economy, and it's something that reporters around the world have been digging into for a while. Another question for you. You mentioned this upcoming stablecoin legislation and how Tether or at least this lack of information surrounding its reserves has sort of prompted this potential bill. You know, how do you see this information continuing to factor into stablecoin regulation? And, you know, what are some of the upsides? What are some of the downsides to Tether's making that information transparent? Well, to be clear, you know, Tether just stopped its appeal of Coindesk's winning in court against it when we foiled the New York Attorney General's office. So, Tether itself is not providing any of this information. And even in a blog post, they said they're not going to publish the documents themselves. So just to be clear on that part, as far as legislation goes, you know, I think Congress is more or less aligned on this idea that stablecoin issuers need to be more transparent about what they're issuing and what that stuff is being backed by. If you look at the points of contention on the debate between Republicans and Democrats, a lot of it comes down to the role of state and federal regulators. There's no real argument about the idea that stablecoin issuers must be transparent about what is backing their reserves. So, you know, should this legislation actually make it through Congress, become a law? Right now, I don't think Tether has a huge official role in the U.S. anyway. It's, you know, not really used New York, for example, the state. Other states, I think, are going to have to start taking a look at, you know, if this legislation passes, whether or not they would be comfortable with letting crypto exchanges operating in these states use Tether or transact with Tether. So that's one possible you know, impact that we're going to be looking at. And the other is just this, will there be more transparency across stablecoin issuers across the board? A lot of them claim to have some level of transparency. And we're seeing, especially with now these banking crises and some of these trust companies that are struggling, we're seeing a lot of second order effects among stablecoin issuers because either they're not being fully transparent about you know, where their funds are and how they're transacting, or they're being a little less than you know fully transparent about what kind of banking partners they're using and where those funds are going and how they're transacting with these trust companies and such. So we are looking at a lot of potential effects from this legislation. All right. Well, fascinating. Nick, please keep us posted. Always a pleasure to have you. And we're very interested to see how this develops and what it means for stablecoin regulation. Thanks for having me. This week on the show, we are joined by a consensus speaker, Oliver von landsberg Sadie, the CEO of BCB Group. Oliver, welcome to the program. Could you start off by just giving us and our listeners a quick one-minute rundown of what BCB Group does and where it fits into the crypto industry? Hey, Danny. Thanks. Uh, of course, um, BCB Group fills that bit of infrastructure that lets a crypto company move money 
It's a problem that's surprisingly hard to solve, but um, we provide payments accounts in 30 plus currencies for most of the major market makers and exchanges in this space. We've pushed more than $100 billion uh, through the pipes, and that's quite meaningful in this space as we try and expand the UK and European bits of this market. So market makers, exchanges, that's our sweet spot. And we are just uh, here to service that super important part of the infrastructure. And when we're talking about moving money, I think it's important in crypto to talk about what the money is that we're moving, right? So is, is this crypto dollars? Is this real dollars? Are these euros? Where? What is the focus here for the actual money? What kind of money is it? So I've given up describing ourselves as a bank for, for the crypto industry because people automatically assume it's um, stable coins or, or crypto. It is just regular dollars, pounds, euros over local payment rails where we can. So that's SEPA in Europe and FPS in the UK. It is, it is real money. Now, of course, we do service stable coins. It is a part of the infrastructure. But moving money is hard because regulators are really interested in where that money has come from and where it's going because it doesn't have a blockchain explorer. You can't <laughs> chain explore the cash to, uh, to trace the problem. So it's a highly regulated thing, and it is, in layman's terms, a bank account. But yeah, that's what it does. So operating in this space and being that bridge for crypto companies, I imagine that the goalposts are quickly changing, especially in the environment, the regulatory environment that we face globally What with all these blowups and other considerations that local jurisdictions are taking into consideration. So when you're thinking about how BCB Group can pursue its goals, what laws and what regulations globally are top of mind? It has been a hell of a journey keeping up with the changes in, in the regulatory space. Also, keeping up with the, the change in risk appetite from different regulators and, and different banks. The basic license is a payments institution license. The, the trick here is you don't actually need to be a bank to move money. You don't even need to be an e-money company, although it helps. A payments institution is the minimum viable product that gets companies what they need. So it looks and feels like a bank account. Uh, and in the UK and the EU, it's been regulated as a payments institution. We are also getting regulated in the EU under the ACPR with France as an e-money institution there. But again, these are uh, the, the fundamental difference between these accounts and bank accounts is that these rely on a network of banks. It's not a single point of failure. And this is really the key to how we're going to punch through in this super volatile market is how do we provide a service that's not going to be vulnerable to the next regulator's risk appetite? And it is exactly through this mechanism, which is doing it with many banks. And if one bank goes down or loses its own risk appetite for crypto, we've got the failovers there. And that's proved itself in the case of Euro. In the USD, before we fully launch our USD capabilities, we will have at least two partner banks before we go fully live. We don't want the risk of the SEC turning their nose up at another good bank just because it's crypto. So Oliver, at the beginning, you mentioned stable coins and how that is something that people think a lot about, but you know, it's just a part of what BCB does. So as of last week, there is news from Parliament's upper house about a stable coin law coming to fruition. Can you talk a little bit about how that will impact what BCB Group does, how it impacts your dealings with stablecoins, you know, whether you're excited about it or whether you're a little bit wary as to how this might impact your business in crypto? Stablecoins have been a super divisive topic because crypto natives hate the anti-privacy part of it. The government's controlling the visibility of where money goes from and to. Uh, the thing is, I've got a slightly more reductive view of CD CBDCs. For me, it is a 
pretty good upgrade, uh, the software upgrade uh, of an existing, basically almost entirely electronic system anyway. So it is, it's taking it a step up. Um, it's attaching metadata like, like identity and it's, it's just enriching the way money flows. So from a non, from a general kind of man on the street point of view, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a positive thing. We're going to have a slightly slicker way to operate money. But I think it keeps trying to be crypto. There is, you know, calling it a digital currency and then bucketing it in the same category as crypto is, is misleading. It's just intellectually dishonest. We don't have redundancy of databases. We don't have trustlessness. And so from those aspects, I think it's fine. But when it starts to be conflated with crypto innovation, then it's, it's just irritating it, because it, it has its own place in traditional finance. But when we move on to stable coins like USDC or you know, the, the long list, I think um, there we have a much more digitally native version of money, money that can still have the same controls that governments are after, that regulators need to ensure that money's not being laundered, but is actually crypto native, is built on an EVM and is distributed across a bunch of you know, layer one servers. It's, um, it has, in my view, much more chance of the long run uh, success. But do you think among regulators, there is a little discrepancy in that understanding of a CBDC and a stablecoin being separate, you know, one being crypto and one being a digital currency that is regulated and, you know, backed by governments? Do you see an understanding of that difference? Because that's something that certainly come up in US stablecoin regulation as well. The difference is mine or not mine. Stablecoins, you can pop up a, a MetaMask wallet and receive USDC to your Ethereum address. To operate CBDCs, you'll have to be very much within the system. You'll have to you know, hard, hard tag your identity. So, uh, and, and it's also tying itself to a single tech stack. In, in crypto, what, what is so amazing is the, the pace of innovation. You've got hundreds of thousands of amazingly talented engineers all over the world building things in a very different way, in a much more distributed way. If CBDCs are going to be pushing money over these new digital rails, those digital rails are going to be built by small groups of uh, you know, centralized engineers in a very much you know, 20th century way. So I don't think CBDCs have any hope of really keeping up in the long run with the kind of innovation that we can see from stablecoins. Stablecoins, you can run on a bunch of different layer ones. You can embed smart contracts on them, and you can still satisfy all of those things that the regulators and governments care about, your density, money laundering, and all those things. And with those considerations, with what governments want, especially in Europe, the thing that comes top of mind to me is MICA, and specifically one of the mandates being that I think starting next year, maybe, all crypto wallets will have to have KYC associated with them, which is to say that in Europe, if you're going to have a crypto wallet, then there's going to be some identifier of who you actually are and, and that you own this wallet, which is a very big change that goes against the idea that people can anonymously hold cryptocurrencies. Now, I, I heard in your voice a little bit that you seem to very much care about the philosophical underpinnings of cryptocurrency. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the philosophical road that a European regulations are taking. We're not going to get to the crypto utopia in a straight line. We're going to have to play ball and evolve in a way that is compatible with a system that's ultimately just trying to care, uh, it, it, it providing consumer care, providing market structure, and you know providing you know anti-criminal measures. So the regulations attempting to name wallets, I think of it as a bit like trying to manually label every twenty euro note. It's nuts. Um, it's 
I mean, so I don't mean to be disparaging about our, uh, you know, regulators, but it is, I can't see how it's going to be practical. It is, it's just going to stifle innovation. It's going to stifle ownership. Adoption will not get off the ground if you have to go and label every single wallet. People won't go for it. There is a way to achieve privacy without being anonymous. And that's ultimately what regulators care about. They don't, they want to know who you are. Is it whether they want to know what you do or more so than the who you are? Like, if I'm me, but I'm also funding terrorists, maybe they don't actually care. Well, I guess they probably would also care. Who Once they know that someone's funding they terrorists, care. they want to know who's doing it, but they yeah. want to stop the activity. Sure. You know, getting to the weeds of um, what specifically is going to be tracked and who, you know, what they're going to care about. You know, we could cover things like tax or ways to measure import-export dynamics. And there's, there's a whole bunch of cool things you can do on the back of CBDCs when you've got the data visibility. But... This is a stepping stone. The, the, again, the route from here to cryptographically sound future, where we have trustlessness, where we have privacy, involves these steps in which we have super granular regulatory definition. So consider this a first pass at it. I think Meek is a fantastic set of regulation, really. I'm not, um, it, it is a real step forward. And of course, what we saw from the, the financial services bill is also, whilst it may seem a little half-baked to some crypto natives who are a little more hardcore on the uh, crypto utopia side of things, it is it does it does help us progress because it gives us rules. And at least when we have rules, we can either follow them or challenge them through healthy dialogue with the rule makers. A place where we have no rules with no regulation is a place where crypto doesn't grow. That's the paradox. That's I mean that's kind of the counterintuitive bit that I guess those from a more traditional finance background like myself accept and this is how we build we build with regulators with how to build bcb up there was this effort from about two years ago to buy a bank uh, i think it's suter bank in uh, germany and it needed german regulators approval that was taking a while perhaps too long and the decision was made i think this month not to go forward with that deal I'd love to hear and for the audience to hear what BCB was seeking to accomplish with buying a bank and whether it's now a situation where this may not be the best bank to do that with, or more so that the goals that BCB wanted from back then might no longer apply now. It comes down to timing. Back in December 21, when the acquisition was signed, with a view to complete when, when Barfin approves the deal... The economics made sense. The the market was in a different place, and um, and our long term goals, our product roadmaps, were very much aligned. A lot has happened in the last two years, and um, you know it, it took a lot of analysis to and and, and um, courage to step up to the table on both sides and, and go. Is this is this really still the right thing for us to do? But the case for it is still valid. The case for it is. By owning a bank, you also own the payment rails. You, you can get directly to, you know, SEPA, to SIC in Switzerland or FPS in the UK. And there are ways to get, a, get access to them without being a bank, but it is a lot easier if you are a bank. So that's number one, it's direct access. And there you also control the tech. By having a bank, you also control the risk appetite. You don't have to rely on your third-party network of supplier banks to validate who you want to do business with. If you are the bank, you want to regulate it directly. So that kind of risk appetite is number two. And the third is the number of um, banking as a service providers out there is vanishingly small. And it is a bit of a uh, somewhat of a monopoly. So there's a, there is a cost element that does reflect that rarity, that scarcity. And by having a bank, you do avoid that. And these three points, the 
the direct access, the compliance appetite, and the how you actually execute ultimately is um, so they're still valid, and it just didn't make sense in this particular instance anymore. Their their plans have diverged, our plans have diverged, and uh, it would have been a mistake to to push on. We had zero negative feedback uh, from the German regulator, uh, just Q and A after Q and A and long delays. And it was a blessing in disguise that things took so long because we had an opportunity to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, guys, well, made sense then, but not so much now. Good luck. We'll still um, have a good supplier-vendor relationship, um, uh, but uh, yeah, the, the M&A was not necessary anymore. The M&A was really our gateway into Europe as well, one of our two gateways. The other gateway is hopefully going live soon. It is an e-money license under France's ACPR, which we are also pairing with a DASP license. France seems to be really on the front foot with the interpretation of the regulation and how it applies to digital asset firms and payments firms. So we're very excited to be able to access Europe through the new French e-money license in, in a couple of months. Did you not expect that to be the case, that France would really be the jurisdiction that you could get a lot done under? It's um, it's becoming less of a secret. I think a lot of companies are looking that way. Uh, Circle, for example, have applied for the same e-money license. It's, it's a slam dunk for them. It's, it's, it's an absolutely the right move and the right gateway into Europe. Now, the rules are basically the same across the EU, but how the regulators interact with the companies applying for the rules is different. The ACPR, unlike the FCA, are very interactive. You don't, it's not a fire and forget situation where you send a pack and hope for the best six months later. It's very interactive. It's very progressive. It's very well informed. It's on the front foot. Switzerland's FINMA, also very much on the front foot. Um, but it's quite uh, an insular crypto economy that really does a good job of serving itself, but has trouble, I guess, um, serving at a global scale. But FINMA itself, also super progressive crypto regulator. So the, in Europe, the rules are the same for everyone, but the point of entry is different. More right? or less. For, for, yeah. Does that mean that some jurisdictions might work against others? Like, not this is maybe broader than just a crypto question, and more just the bureaucracy of the EU. But when you have all these different regulators that are being the gatekeepers to the same pool, doesn't that create a situation where you might even have regulatory arbitrage, where everyone goes to the same one spot because they know well over here they'll get the answer they might they want easier than over there i think the difference really comes across the pond and not within the continent so in europe it's all variations of the payment services regulations defined at, you know in belgium so it's not um it's not a case of one rule per european country there are variations when you come to the the wider eea block so when you look at the scandies and eastern europe then you start to see i guess um idiosyncratic local specific things but generally it's pretty consistent. But if you contrast those general EU PSRs versus what the SEC have come up with, what the CFTC are defining and all the other kind of bodies who have some kind of influence on what crypto regulation looks like in the US, that's a, you know, it's a massive difference. I guess a closer cousin to the European regulation would be Singapore's monetary authority. The MAS out there is progressive and not too different from the EU. You know, we've discussed the SEC, the CFTC, you know, several U U.S. regulators have come up on this call. And I know we haven't necessarily been talking about U.S. regulation, but I'm curious with, you know, these discussions of Mika and different regimes across Europe in terms of regulation, at least seems like there is a little bit more of a framework that's actually in place as opposed to the U.S. And with this conversation around this regulatory crackdown and more companies moving out of the U.S. and into Europe, you know, 
Are you anticipating that? Are, are you seeing any early signs? You know, you mentioned Circle applying for this license in France. I guess I'm curious what can we can expect of this migration almost before there's actual framework set up by some of the regulators based in America. I think the best case study is Coinbase. This really hit hard, hit the market hard. You know, this big, wholesome you know company that's trying to do it right, but begging for a way to kind of submit and apply for, for different securities licenses or you know any anything that can give them legitimate US regulator stamped ways to do business. And they're just, the door keeps slamming and they get told that, uh, I don't know, I don't need to kind of recount the Coinbase story, but it is, when you zoom out, what you see is Coinbase is huge for us in, in the crypto community, but relative to say tier one banks in the rest of the world, it's actually you know, it's it's quite small. But what we have now, in the last two weeks, all these headlines of big banks suddenly open their doors to Bitcoin ETFs or other ways to engage in the market meaningfully. Custody, for example. This is going to be the market pressure that is going to force the SEC and others to maybe just pause for thought and go, actually, there's some business we understand. We know what an investment bank looks like. We, we've been regulating them for a long time. And uh, maybe... My view is maybe they kind of hit the brakes a little on, on Operation Choke Point. Or maybe they don't. Maybe they just, I don't know. Market forces from tier one investment banks, I think, is going to drive the US's view on how to regulate crypto. And there's a lot to learn from, from Mika and how it's been done in Europe. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Oliver. We'll be looking forward to hearing what's coming out of BCB next. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Cam. Thanks, Oliver. All right. So another week, another Consensus Magazine theme week. Super exciting. This week, we are diving into crypto hubs. Now, these are places around the world, different cities that are burgeoning ecosystems for cryptocurrency, you know, within a city. So whether that be companies that are driving this adoption, enablers, you know, encouraging people to hop on and opportunities there to work in crypto. I think it's a really interesting time to have this theme week regarding all of the recent regulatory developments in the United States and this conversation around a coordinated crackdown. Looking at where crypto is thriving across the world is really interesting. So I'm not going to read the whole list now. You can read that online. But the top five cities, number one, Zug, Switzerland, number two, Singapore, number three, London, number four, Seoul, and number five, Dubai. So there are quite a few other cities on this list, though. Ones that, Danny, we have both spent time in doing crypto things. So one of the cities on that list is Austin, Texas. What are your thoughts on Austin being named in this list? You know, outside of consensus, what's the crypto ecosystem like there? Beyond consensus, there is no Austin in crypto. I think we have to take full and complete credit for turning Austin into a crypto hub. You know, that aside, Austin does have a very robust crypto scene. There's ATX DAO, which is some sort of decentralized autonomous organization that works with city politicians and the state politicians to pass crypto legislation. A lot of crypto companies have offices or are based there. Not entirely surprising, and especially given the taco scene, everyone loves tacos. Crypto people are no exception. Austin is a must-have on this list. Absolutely, absolutely. And both times that I've been to Consensus in 2022 and most recently 2023, I've met a bunch of people there who are local to the Austin area and are building something in crypto. You know, it might not be a big name, might not be a big project, but they're really excited about fostering this group of people in the city around cryptocurrency. And 
A couple of their cities on the list are Los Angeles and New York. So I grew up in LA. Now I live in New York. I'm a little bit surprised that LA ranks before New York on this list. They're just one number apart. LA is number 11 and New York's number 12. I have seen over the past couple years that LA has grown in terms of the NFT scene. And there are a lot of NFT artists, you know, there are a lot of talent agencies that are based in LA that are kind of fueling some of the excitement around this world. New York is certainly more on the financial side. So, you know, you have a lot of the custodians, a lot of the larger companies. However, New York might not have as many, part of it being the big reason for the bit license and some of the regulation that keeps people from registering their companies in New York. So, Danny, I mean, you also used to live here. What are your thoughts on New York? New York's uh, obvious pick for the list, right? There's just so much financial activity, so much activity. New York's just a hub for everything, right? And so it has to also be a hub for crypto. I don't know much of anything about LA's crypto scene. I do know they have a couple of conferences here and there. I'm not completely surprised that LA being an entertainment hub would also be a hub for NFTs specifically. I am also though surprised to hear that LA is ranking above. My favorite city on this list, though, is one few people listening to this show have ever heard of, uh, Ljubljana, Slovenia. Now, I've been there before. I haven't been there for crypto, thankfully. Uh, it's a lovely little town, and it's very tech-forward. I'm definitely interested to learn a little bit more about what specifically in the crypto scene is going on there. I think years ago, I reached out to some person in Slovenia, in Ljubljana specifically, who was trying to get some legislation passed. I'll have to check in on them, but uh, highly recommend a visit to Slovenia and to Ljubljana. I would love to visit. And somewhere else I'd love to visit on that same Europe trip is Lisbon, Portugal. Now, Lisbon ranks number 15 on this list, so it's at the bottom, you know, which doesn't mean it's not a great crypto hub. It's just not as high up as the others, which is something that I'm surprised about. I mean, I've always heard that Lisbon is this ecosystem flourishing with so many companies coming there because of regulatory compliance concerns, as well as a lot of builders, a lot of startups, a lot of people excited about living there and building this crypto community. And there are a lot of conferences there, too. I mean, Danny, you've been to Lisbon a couple times for conferences. You know, have you seen that outside of the actual events themselves? Well, it's hard for me to say so much about Lisbon's scene outside of the events, because when I've been there, and I've been there twice, it's all about the events, and those events being uh, Ethereum conferences, Solana conferences, the Web Summit, which is just a really big web-focused conference, not a crypto conference, but it has some crypto aspects. A reason, though, why there's so much talk and activity about Lisbon is because of its digital nomad laws, which try to bring these people who work in, in tech companies around the world and don't need to have a home base to Lisbon for low taxes and other reasons, uh, low cost of living, and help bootstrap the economy because of all these foreigners coming in. Now, it should be said that since the start of this year, there's been a lot of talk about how this digital nomad effort has maybe not backfired, but perhaps sputtered out in Portugal, and it hasn't been as successful as it should be, or maybe too successful in that it's pricing locals out. So when you see crypto people move in, and when you see tech people more broadly move into a city that isn't used to that, you can uh, change the composure of the city itself, which isn't always a good thing, especially if you're a local. Absolutely. I mean, another city similar to that on this list is Silicon Valley. I mean, first of all, Silicon Valley is not a city, so I would push back on the description of that. However, in this whole region of Northern California, you know, being 
this ecosystem, this place where so many people were flocking there because of the money, because of the ability to build these businesses outside of San Francisco, you know, Web Zero, Web One, really, it kind of put this place on the map. And it is interesting that there is still a Web3 presence there and it's growing. I mean, I think that it's interesting to analyze how that intersection between these old tech companies, not old tech companies, but you know what I mean, are working alongside Apple, Google, you know, these huge campuses that have developed such a reputation in the tech space. So many cities out there. If you live in a city that you think is crypto savvy, is a growing economy in terms of digital assets, please let us know. Leave us a comment. I want to hear where you're from and what your city's doing. And as always, leave us a review if you like Carpe Consensus and there's certain topics you want to hear more of. If you have a question for us, please let us know. We'd love to hear how you think we're doing. All right, that's all for now. We'll catch you next week. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>